2: Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, two state House representatives leave the Democratic Party. Then restitution centers are at the center of a new investigative story. We take a closer look with one of the reporters, plus a new book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As the 2020 legislative session gets underway, two Mississippi Democrats are leaving the party to become independents. Representative Michael Evans of Preston in Kemper County says his district is about half Republican and half Democratic. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier why he made the change and what he's focusing on during the session.
3: Well, I I decided to go independent this time. Um, Like I said, I didn't have an opponent in this time as a Democrat. And, um, with all the national politics going on between the Democrats and the Republicans on the national level, and that bleeds over here in the Mississippi, and my district is pretty much 50 50. If you look at my district, pretty much votes 50% Democrat and 50% Republican, maybe two or three points difference. And I just said, I said, look, I'm tired of all the political bickering and stuff. I just want to be my own man and, and do what's right for my people back home. And I felt like if I was independent, that, um, I come down here, and really vote my conscience and do what I thought was right for the people.
4: Did you feel like you were taking heat from either side?
3: Well, being in a district like mine, if I'd go to the grocery store, I'd always see my Republican friends that want me to do something, and I'd always see my Democratic friends that was want something. But here in Mississippi, really, a Democrat and Republican is not that much difference. We don't, we all pretty much believe the same thing. And you know, um, but I just said, you know what? I just want to be my own man and do my own thing, and I'm going to be an independent.
4: Well, you know, one of the common things um, we hear in state politics is that the national bleeds over. Do you think that that tainted you?
3: Yes, it does. I believe it does. Because the average Mississippian, that's all they see is what they see on the news. That's all they hear is what they see on the news. And if they look at me as a Democrat or look at one of my Republican friends as a Republican, that's all they think about it. They either think about it. Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or somebody like that when when we really just trying to be our own person here in Mississippi and do our own thing.
4: How long did it take you to reach this decision? Did you have to contemplate it for a while or was it like, let me just go ahead and do this?
3: No, I was fortunate not to have an opponent this time and, and when I realized I didn't have an opponent, I, I pretty much told myself I was going to do something um, at the end of the year. I was going to get the election out of the way and and do something for the beginning of the year so
4: what response have you gotten from your former democratic colleagues
3: nothing uh, i'm still friends with them i'm not i'm not mad at anyone here at this capitol i'm still friends with all the democrats i'm friends with all the republicans um i'm gonna support each party and uh, i'm gonna try to vote what's right for my people back home that's the number one thing i want to do
4: and what's your priorities heading into session
3: there's a a bill called the Reviving Crop Loan for Farmers. That, that loans interest-free money to farmers to help get started. I want to try to help our local farmers by doing that.
4: In terms of education, where do you stand on that in terms of funding?
3: Well, I'm, I'm for funding our public schools. I'm a product of public schools. I believe in supporting our teachers and giving them what they need to, to succeed in the classroom to, to teach our children. So I'm for a teacher pay raise or... If we have extra money, we can give more money for education. I'm for that, too.
4: Also, you know, the prison issue is on everybody's mind right now. Your thoughts on that?
3: Them inmates over there in the prisons are still our families, our brothers and sisters, our cousins. Um, We need to make sure they're taken care of. No one should lose their their life in prison. Um, Some of the conditions are bad in in the prisons, and we need to make sure we correct that also.
2: Kevin Horan of Grenada is also becoming an independent. There are 44 Democrats in the House, 75 Republicans, and now three independents. The state legislature has a Republican supermajority in both chambers. Prisoner advocates are calling on the federal government to investigate the state's prison system for possible civil rights violations. Incoming lieutenant governor Delbert Hoseman visited Parchman this week. He shares his concerns with MPB's Ashley Norwood.
5: Well, the biggest concern always is the safety of uh, my employees and and the uh, and the individuals that are incarcerated. I mean, you start with that in the Highway Patrol. I worry about our men and women being in harm's way in dangerous situations here. So the first thing always is to make sure that we have, as the governor's pointed out, a command and control. And so we, we have that now, and the governor has it. Um, the steps that he's taking are interim steps to a larger, longer solution. Um, I don't think anybody wants to keep everybody in Unit 32, so they're either going to have to go back to Unit 29 or some other, some other alternatives have to be available to us. Uh, we met with the governor yesterday afternoon, uh, speaker, and I did, um, and discussed a number of different options that he's exploring right now today. So he'll be taking those during the next week, I think.
4: There was a rally yesterday and, um Southern Poverty Law Center. They announced their uh, submission of official letter for the DOJ to investigate. Um, do you support bringing in the federal government to investigate what's happening in our sis- prison-, prison systems? No. Tell me why.
5: I tell you uh, because I think Mississippi is quite capable of handling their own. Uh, the first—that wasn't my first visit to when I went there earlier. Uh, I believe that our our individuals who are incarcerated, some five to seven thousand a year, uh, come out of incarceration. And what I need for them to be is educated uh, and of a mind that they want to be a part of our society, get a job, pay taxes, and vote. You know, and do whatever else they got to do. So I, I think that's really important. Um, we, uh, we have struggled uh, with part from, we've made certain corrections and whatnot, and there's a lot of more work to be done. But I, I feel comfortable that um, our, our new group, our new governor, speaker, and I will take the steps necessary to comply with all of the standards that we set as, as human beings about how we treat other human beings.
4: Those steps do they include salary increases, extra funding for infrastructure,
5: et cetera? Uh, none of this is going to require less money.
4: Is there anything I didn't ask you about the situation you think is important to
5: add? No, I, I, I think it's currently under control, but it's certainly not in its final. It's not in its final determinative stage. And uh, the governor has a good bit of experience in law enforcement, and uh, he's leading all of us on uh, steps to be taken at this time. And, the handoff to the new governor will be next week. But in the interim, we're already working on the plans.
2: Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman will officially begin his duties as lieutenant governor today. Coming up, restitution centers are at the center of a new investigative story. We take a closer look with one of the reporters. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Get your MPB car tag anytime. It doesn't even have to be up for renewal. Simply go to your county office to sign up. When you get an MPB car tag, a portion of the fee helps MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. For details, visit MPBonline.org slash cartag. We'll see you on the road. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In a story jointly reported by the Marshall Project and Mississippi Today, journalists Anna Wolf and Michelle Liu dive into the dark world of Mississippi's restitution centers. Stuck between prison and freedom, inmates often don't know when they'll get to go home. As Michelle Liu of Mississippi Today tells us, the research on this topic was extensive. So we did an extremely wide search.
0: We interviewed over a dozen experts. We talked to correctional officials in other states. And we found that while the concept of the Restitution Center program was developed in the 1970s as an alternative to prison, most states wound up abandoning that kind of program in recent years because it was expensive and ineffective and just wasn't that good at getting the money they needed from the folks going through the program.
2: How many centers are there in Mississippi? There are
0: four centers across the state. There are two in the Jackson area, one for men and one for women. And then there are two more centers for men, one down on the coast in Pascagoula and another in the Delta
2: in Greenwood. How many people in Mississippi are housed in those four different centers? Each center has the capacity to hold dozens of people,
0: and we found through our reporting that hundreds of people are sentenced to these centers and go through the program every year.
2: They're there because they owe restitution to some party. Not necessarily. All right.
0: We found in a number of cases that folks were sentenced for drug possession, which many folks tend to think of as a victimless crime, right? There's no one you ostensibly need to be paying restitution for because it's not a property crime. What these folks are generally sentenced there for are court ordered that so that can be fines, fees or restitution.
2: If somebody is sentenced for a drug charge, why are they there as opposed to in jail or prison?
0: Sure, so we found that most of the folks sentenced these centers were sentenced because they had violated some terms of their probation. And often one of those terms was not paying fines, fees, and or restitution. So they
2: do have to pay something. Right. Do all of the people in the centers then have a job, and is that check that they earn taken by the Department of Corrections? So the
0: rules in the handbook that the Department of Corrections gives these folks when they enter the program says that they – should be working, right, and that they can face consequences if they refuse to work or get even get fired from their jobs. Another rule that is in the handbook is that you're basically not allowed to handle your own money. All of your paychecks are taken by the Department of Corrections. You're not allowed to hold on to them. You're not allowed to take money out from them. That transfer of funds for your labor doesn't directly involve you, <laughs> Do they have to pay to live at these centers? Yes, so they're paying $11 a day in room and board, and
2: that's coming out of their paychecks too. Michelle Liu is a journalist with Mississippi Today. Anita Husband is the subject of the story. A judge sentenced her to one of the state's four centers in 2015. She reflects on her time in the Flowood Restitution Center with our Michael Guidry.
6: Um, the center they sent me to was a an old hotel Um, My first impression was I I was really scared. I I was nervous. It was a place I'd never been. It was a program that I've never really been to. I've heard things about it, but um, never had a hands-on experience with it. So I was very afraid. And all I wanted to do was um, come home, basically, do what I had to do and come home.
1: The center that you were assigned is in Flowood, Mississippi, but that's not where you're from, is that correct?
6: No, correct. I'm from Biloxi, Mississippi, which is about two and a half, three hours away.
1: When you were assigned to the restitution center in the restitution program, did the judge give you a time frame for when your sentence would be complete, or was it solely based on your ability to pay back the fines that you had accrued?
6: Your ability to pay back. No one goes in there with, you know, six months at the restitution. You go there not knowing when you're coming home.
1: What difficulties did you encounter within this system and within your ability to pay back your restitution?
6: For one thing, you're giving a, a job that's paying minimum wage, part-time, and you're charged rent if you um have any medical bills you're charged for that so my problem was i was in my court order i was to pay $200 a month for restitution anything less than that i was in violation of my my um sentence my probation okay i went there and i was given a job making 725 i worked maybe 20 25 hours a week, which basically was um, maybe $150, $160 a week. And then on top of that, I had to pay, um, I think my rent was $277. And then anything like um, personal hygiene or um, washing your clothes, you had to pay for. So they gave you an allowance, which was ten to twenty dollars a week so you take that out that's twenty dollars a week that's eighty dollars plus the 277 which did not equal up to two hundred dollars a month after everything was taken out so you sentenced me because I couldn't pay two hundred dollars a month to a restitution center that wasn't giving you two hundred dollars a month on my restitution
1: you said you only worked 25 or so hours a week what were you doing when you were not at work
6: they have a program where you accumulate points. Um, good points get you um merit flight, a weekend home. So I would do things to accumulate points. I would um, clean up the yard. I would um, help wash the dishes after they fed the female prisoners. I would wash the van. And a lot of times I would just stay in my room if I wasn't doing that.
1: What was your experience with the employer during this uh during this time in the restitution system?
6: Um they were they were really nice. You know, they didn't treat me any different. The only thing I couldn't pick up my check. You know, um any way they could help me, you know, if they went to the re- another restaurant, they would bring me back food or you know, so forth and so on, but they didn't really um discriminate because I was a restitutioner.
1: You said that you weren't allowed to pick up your check. How, how did that work? How did you get whatever bit you got from it?
6: Okay, um, I, I got paid, I think, every Monday, I want to say. Um, the officer, when they picked me up, the manager bought the check to the officer. When I got to the center, I signed the check, and that was it. The way we got paid was every Friday they would give us $10 in quarters. That's the wash and um, personal hygiene stuff and you know to if you want to buy a snack or two or what have you, but um it was ten dollars a week in quarters. They say twenty, but no one never really got twenty. We got ten
1: do you hope with the new legislative session starting that all of this accumulates and maybe a change in the way Mississippi handles restitution?
6: most definitely um now, for the men restitution center is is very different they get better paying jobs they you know it's it's more of a success for them but for the females it's it's not an, a success
4: do you
1: think oh. there's a reason for that do you can you pinpoint a reason for that
6: um jobs pay you know the men um they get jobs um they have a restitution center in pascagoula they get on at the shipyard making 13 14 an hour you know so therefore their their fine can be paid quicker I think, I think the judges know that it's, it's a failure. Um, uh, about two months ago, I had the pleasure of going to, um, court with a friend and somebody else was sentenced to the restitution center. And, um, the judge said, so, um, what happened with you in the restitution center? She said, I completed it. And he said, what? And she said, yes, I can, com- I completed it. And he said, well, how did you do that? And she said, well, I had um, some loved ones to pay the money for me. But the judge was shocked that she was, you know, she had completed it. So that let me know there that they know that it's not, you know, a program that's going to be successful.
2: Find out more about Anita Husband's story in Working Towards Freedom. This story was jointly reported by the Marshall Project and Mississippi Today. The print version of this story is available at themarshallproject.org and mississippitoday.org. Coming up, we have a new book club for you. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: What are the top 10 ways to listen to MPB Think Radio? Number 10, the iHeartRadio app. Number 9, TuneIn Radio. Number 8, Amazon Alexa. Number 7, Google Home. Number 6, Deezer. What's a Deezer? Number 5, Spotify. Number 4, Stitcher. Number 3, YouTube. To listen to a radio station? Yeah, all the kids do that now. Number 2, Apple. And the number 1 way to listen to MPB Think Radio? The MPB Public Media app. Free in the iTunes and Google Play Store. What about just over the radio in the car? Yeah, you can do that too.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi icon B.B. King spent his life playing the blues and introducing other musicians to the genre he embraced. In A New Portrait of King, author Diane Williams shares the details of his humble beginnings before offering a series of interviews with bandmates and family. It's in The Life and Legacy of B.B. King.
7: He was born in 1925. And the Delta blacks were working out as sharecroppers in the fields and those kinds of things. So life was really, really very hard for him. His mother had diabetes and she died young. He lived with his mother and grandmother after his parents separated and divorced. So when his mother died, went blind, died at a young age, and he stayed with his grandmother, she died not long after that, and B.B. King lived by himself for a little while was a really, really hard life for him, but I found so much integrity to pay off that debt as a young boy. Later on, as an older teenager, he ran the plantation owner's tractor into a barn, and then he got scared. He ran away, and that's when he went to Memphis the first time. When he came back, he paid that debt, and, and those are the kinds of things I want people to know about him. He really was a man of integrity. He was a man that cared to do the right thing. He cared about people. He, wanted to, he, he traveled over 300 days a year, but he wanted people to know about the blues. He, didn't, he wasn't out there just trying to make money. He wanted them to understand this journey of blues music.
2: How did someone with such a tough background discover his own talent?
7: I look at him as a little boy looking at soundies. Soundies were these you put your coin in and you can look and you can see famous musicians, famous actors and things like that. You know, he even saw like the Keystone Cops, but he saw people like Count Basie on these soundies. He saw how nicely they were dressed, how they performed. And that impressed him. And then he also listened to the music on the victrolas, and and he heard people like Blind Lemon Johnson and different older older musicians just before his time, and those people impressed him. Back then, blacks would dress up in suits and they would carry themselves very well. And even in the Delta and Indianola, before Club Ebony, there was another club. And he would have musicians from the region, well-known musicians come, and B.B. King would be able to, even as a young boy, peek in and see these great musicians. And he wanted to be like that. He wanted to dress up in suits, and he did all of his life. The book includes
2: a dozen interviews. Who did you decide who to talk with and why?
7: You know, that's the funny thing. Mississippi is so full of great musicians. And I think it's my own experiences and the people that I've met and connected with. But then there were so many people that people said, you should talk to so-and-so. But I found as an oral historian, it's hard to talk to people, especially when they get older, their recollection, their memory, the date and timelines of things sometimes get a little bit distorted. So I talked to a lot of people that didn't make it into the book. But I had to be able to substantiate anything that connected to a time, a place, an era. And if I couldn't connect it, I had to let it go. You said
2: that he was a man of integrity and you want people to know that.
7: What else mm-hmm. do you
2: want people to know about B.B. B. King from your book?
7: I really want people to know how he encouraged other musicians, even if they weren't great musicians even if they had a bad day and he was around and he saw that he offered words of encouragement there is an element in this book you know i'm probably one of the first female and black women writers of a bb king book and for me I think this book is important to the African-American people because it encourages us. It helps us see someone that came through civil rights era and didn't let that stop him, didn't let that be his focal point, did not let those hardships of the times stop him from doing what was deeply rooted in his soul. And I know B.B. King sailed over a lot of that because he was so good that some of the best recording companies snatched him up, but he still was affected by those things. Diane Williams is
2: the author of The Life and Legacy of B.B. King. Diane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio.